Um, we're focusing uh, very much on these three chapters in uh, Matthew's Gospel. Feel my clickers feeling me? Um, do you want to take it from me and see? Oh, it's working now. There we go. Um, we're focusing on these three chapters in Matthew's Gospel. Um, but we haven't said much about the wider context in Matthew, and I just want to say a really brief word about that. Um, Matthew's Gospel, of all the Gospels, seems to have been written especially for a Jewish audience, and there are lots of clues that um, point in that direction. Um, Matthew's Gospel also contains more of the teaching of Jesus than any of the other Gospels. And whenever people study the structure of Matthew's Gospel, they notice that the teaching in Matthew is arranged in five main sections. Um, and you can kind of spot them. You can look for them later on if you want. Um, each of them ends with the words, when Jesus had finished speaking. So Matthew seems to have deliberately collected the teaching of Jesus into these five discourses through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, why might that be significant? Well, for Jewish believers, um, you, you, you probably know, you, you possibly know, the, the first five books of the Old Testament were especially important. Uh, they called those five books the Torah or the law. They also called them the books of Moses because those five books were especially associated with that kind of um, towering figure of Moses. Moses who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Moses who led them to Mount Sinai where they received the law. And now Matthew in his gospel gives us five sections of teaching from Jesus. And the first and biggest of those is the one that we're reading at the minute, uh, which is given on a mountain. And I wonder what it might be that Matthew is trying to say by arranging his gospel in that way. Um, I don't really want to try and answer that for you, but I want to encourage you to puzzle over it. Um, in what ways is Jesus similar to Moses? Um, in what ways is Jesus different and greater than Moses? Think about that mountain where the law was given. Think about this mountain where Jesus gives this teaching. Think about uh, the law that was given at Sinai. Think about this teaching from Jesus. Um, think about how Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt. And in what way does Jesus lead us out of slavery uh, today? I'm doing too much of the work for you. But go, go and think about that. Um, it's very deliberate the way this gospel has been crafted to make us think about Moses and Jesus in this way. Um, so that's a little bit of wider context. Um, but let's come to our reading for this morning. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. This is where we really get to the, the practical punch and challenge of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and then there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. 
then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. We're going to be focusing very much mainly on the the first little part of this section. So I actually want to read uh, that little bit again just to focus in on it. Uh, So just the first couple of verses. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Those are the very challenging words that we want to focus on this morning. Um, This little uh, formula, uh, you've heard that it was said, and then, but I, but I tell you, or I say unto you, um, Jesus uses this formula six times in the, these few paragraphs. We're going to see it coming up, uh, again and again over the next few weeks. And each time he quotes something from the Old Testament law. You've heard that it was said, and then a bit of Old Testament law. Um, and then he gives us his teaching. And maybe immediately we wonder, is Jesus standing then against the Old Testament law? in contradiction to it. But of course, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, Just a few weeks ago, we were looking at uh, verse 17, where Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Um, So Jesus, in this formula, is not standing against the Old Testament law, but he's standing against the way the Old Testament law has been interpreted by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law the ways in which it has been used and abused in people's hearing uh, uh, as they go about their lives. And Jesus is going to show us how to read the Old Testament law in a way that will bring life rather than killing us, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, So let's think about this one. Here's this little bit of Old Testament law. Uh, You shall not murder. Sorry for the graphic image. Um, You shall not murder. Um, let's maybe ask the question, how might the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have read that command? Well, as we've talked about already, they they would have focused very much on external behavior and then added subclauses to clarify and qualify what that command means and what, what it doesn't mean. And so in this case, they might have expanded the, the command a little bit maybe to include not only murder itself, but also acts of violence against another person. So any time when we cause bodily harm to another person, that might have been included uh, under a broader definition of not only murder, but violence. And so they might have felt pretty good about that. We're, we're going above and beyond what the law actually asks, not only murder, but also violence. They may also have debated um exceptions to the command? Are there times when killing another person is justifiable and doesn't count as murder? Um, So perhaps in times of war or in certain acts of self-defense, or some people might have argued in capital punishment, um, 
And the debate would have gone on about what are, what are the exceptions when killing another person is not murder. But the Pharisee conversation stays on external behavior, stays on the surface. And if we stay with this command, do not murder, on the level of external behavior, then I want to suggest most of us end up feeling pretty good about ourselves. Maybe I could uh, put up a graphic like this. We end up with this division between the righteous on the one side and the unrighteous on the other. And we are safely on the right side of the line. Most of us have never killed another person. We've never even attacked another person violently. And we can look over the line at those people over there, um, those who murder, those who are violent and aggressive, terrorists and wife beaters and drug dealers and violent criminals. And you can add in there other categories of people that you might think of. And there's a clear line between us and them. They are unrighteous. And we tend to use language like saying they are animals or they are monsters or they are sick. And by contrast, we are safely on this side of the line with the decent, the respectable, the upstanding, the righteous, us and people like us. Uh, often we think those people are what is wrong with the world. And if, if they could only be rounded up and removed and locked up and the key thrown away, then the rest of us could get on with living in peace and maybe the problems of the world would be solved. That if we stay on the level of external behavior, that's the way we can end up thinking, a big, thick red line down the middle, separating them from us. wonder what you think about that. Um, we've said before, uh, Jesus has come to comfort the disturbed, but he's also come to disturb the comfortable. And this is a very comfortable place to stay um, with this red line down the middle. But Jesus wants to talk about the heart. And so Jesus says, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister comes under judgment. Um, I wonder how you feel now. Have you ever been angry with a brother or sister, with another person? Um, maybe even at this point in Jesus' words, maybe some of us still feel kind of okay. Because maybe when we think of an angry person, we think of someone who kind of blows their top and loses their temper and raises their voice and slams doors and throws things. And maybe some of us are thinking, well, I don't do that. I stay pretty chill and level, at least on the outside. I'm not an angry person. But this is where Jesus goes uh, to an even more uncomfortable level. And he says, anyone who says, Raka. Now, what does that mean? Well, Raka, we don't know exactly. We know it's an Aramaic term of contempt. It seems to be connected to the sound that you make when you spit. So it's about spitting on another person's name. Um, it's about writing off another person as worthless, as good for nothing. That, that's the kind of idea that's involved. Or maybe writing them off, as the last phrase says, as a fool, as a moron, as an idiot. Um, and so Jesus, from talking about murder, comes to talk about anger, and then from talking about anger, he comes to talk about contempt. Um, and I think this is one of the most challenging verses in Scripture for any time, but maybe especially for our time. I wonder, would you agree with me? I think ours is an age 
of widespread contempt. Um, let me risk an example. Um, a few years ago, uh, Hillary Clinton stirred up controversy when she described Donald Trump's supporters as belonging in the basket of deplorables. And I want to say very quickly, I don't want to make a comment about one side in American politics. You may agree with Hillary or you may not. Um, but I want to suggest actually that this is something that we all do, that I do. Um, I actually really like the idea of having a big basket or a big bin where we can put all the people we find deplorable, all the people that I disagree with, all the people I despise, all the people I have no respect for, get in the bin, right? I like that idea, and I think we all do. If we disagree with someone's politics or theology or lifestyle, we want to put them in the basket, labeled deplorable or worthless or idiots or scum of the earth or whatever it is. Um, I think this is widespread in our culture. Um, and by the way, I don't think we get off the hook by saying, well, I don't say these things to their face. I don't call people idiots and morons and despicable to their face. Um, most of the time, a lot of us, we say it when we're safely with our friends. We say it about those people over there, or we say it in the anonymity of online, or we say it in the secrecy of our own heart. But I don't think those things make it better. If anything, that just means we're too cowardly to say it to people's faces. And I think the words of Jesus go to not only what we say out loud, but what we say in the privacy of our own heart. Jesus is interested in our depths, in our hearts, in what lies beneath our surface behavior. Maybe we could picture it like this, that like an iceberg, there's a, on the, on the surface, there's the obvious stuff of murder and violence. But when we look beneath the surface, there is this frothing mess of anger. And then down beneath that in the very darkest depths, this contempt that's in our hearts and our spirits. And Jesus' words are incredibly strong. When we have contempt for another person, when we write them off as worthless, and good for nothing when we sneer and smirk and spit on their name. We're committing murder in our hearts. We do violence to someone God loves for whom Jesus died. We spit on the image of God. And Jesus says, and let's not water it down, we stand under judgment. We deserve to be tried in court as a murderer. Even we deserve the fire of hell. Those are Jesus' words when we have contempt in our heart for another human being made in the image of God. So that's pretty strong. It kind of leaves us here, condemned, convicted as murderers. I am a man of violence. I am a murderer when I have contempt in my heart. Um, so I want to come back to that in a little minute and what we do about that condemnation and conviction. But I want to um, step sideways for a second to talk a, a little bit about Anger, because Jesus mentions anger, and I think we maybe have questions about how to think properly about anger. Um, whenever you look at Christian teaching through the centuries, there are actually two quite different schools of thought on anger that can seem to be pretty contradictory. Um, one school says that anger is always bad, and it's not hard to 
point to evidence in our world that shows the damage that anger does when people act out of anger. Um, and it's also not hard to find Bible verses that seem to support this view that anger is always bad. If we took only this little section that we've read this morning from Jesus, we might conclude that anger is always bad. Or we might think of Paul's words in Ephesians 4.31, where he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of it all. Um, I think that, that view that all anger is bad, um, I, I think that view was probably dominant in our culture a generation ago. Um, you can tell me during the week if you agree with that. Um, I think it has the merit of being simple and black and white. Um, I think where it led to trouble was when we found ourselves, in spite of this principle, getting angry. Sometimes we didn't know what to do with that anger. What do I do with this feeling? Because we believed that anger was bad and unchristian. So we often did our best to deny it or bury it or stuff it deep. And you may have found this in practice that actually doing that doesn't actually get rid of it. It actually tends to fester down in the depths and it will turn into contempt and bitterness and other ugly things. And we can actually become a deeply angry person who doesn't know that they're angry, which is maybe the most dangerous kind. And it can leak out in all kinds of damaging ways uh, to those around us. And I think actually this is a common thing in our culture here in Northern Ireland, uh, where anger has been stuffed deep. And so maybe because of all of that, there's kind of been a pendulum swing, I think, in our generation. And another school of thought has come to prominence that says this, that anger can be healthy and even righteous. And again, it's not hard to find Bible verses to support this view. Um, Jesus, who is the righteous one, gets angry. And we think maybe immediately of the clearing of the temple where he overturned the tables and drove them out with a whip. Or we think of his anger with the Pharisees. You can read, go and read Mark 3 where Jesus healed a man who was crippled and the Pharisees complained that it was on the Sabbath. And it says Jesus looked around at them in anger, deeply disturbed by their hardness of heart. So Jesus, the righteous one, gets angry. And of course, the Bible often speaks of God's holy anger. So anger can be good. Anger can be righteous. Whenever there's something wrong in the world, like injustice or dishonesty or cruelty, the response of a good person will be to get angry. It shows that we care. It shows that we're not indifferent. And so our culture, I think, has embraced this idea um, quite wholeheartedly. Ours is a generation of outrage. And we often believe that this is an expression of moral virtue. We get angry about the things that are wrong in the world. And we stir other people up to get angry as well. And we assume that this righteous anger will fuel a revolution and make the world a better place. wonder what you think about all of that. Um, I think uh, the words of Jesus here post a really vital warning. Uh, by setting our anger alongside contempt, Jesus shows us here, I think, how well he understands the human heart. Because this is what nearly always happens with our anger. 
Um, even if our anger starts off as righteous and just, our anger quickly becomes contaminated by other things. It doesn't stay righteous for long. It gets contaminated by self-righteousness and smugness and pride, and especially by contempt for those people over there. Um, anger can be healthy and righteous. It can, it can be a really helpful red flag to tell us that something is wrong in the world, but it's not a good fuel to run on um, because we end up getting consumed by it. We end up getting set on fire by it. We are not able to control it. We get poisoned by it and it takes over our lives and our hearts. The verse that I think is really important here from James chapter 1, verse 20, where James says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Or put more literally, the anger of man cannot produce the righteousness of God. It doesn't work. Even when our cause is just, maybe especially when our cause is just, we end up getting consumed by the anger and by the contempt. Um, let me let me risk a, maybe a provocative thought. Um, ours is a time of um, tribalism and culture war uh, like I've never seen before uh, between different tribes. And I wonder how you would describe the, the tribal conflict that goes on in our world today. Um, some people describe it as a war between left and right. Some people describe it as a, a war between liberal or progressive on the one side and conservative on the other. Some people even describe it as a battle between secular and religious, or even as a battle between generations, between young and old. Let me make a provocative suggestion that actually most of the time, the battles that rage in our world are a war between Pharisee and Pharisee. Both really convinced that they are right. Both really angry. Both really convinced that their anger is righteous. Both able, if they want to, to quote scripture to support their position. Both tending to feel smug and superior and self-righteous. And both, above all, eaten up with contempt for those on the other side. I, I think that's a true statement of uh, what often goes on in our world. I'll drop that with you uh, for you to think about. But I want to come back to, to you, and, you and I and where, where we left ourselves uh, condemned and convicted. Um, Jesus exposes the reality of our hearts. He says, if you have contempt in your heart for another person, you stand before God convicted as a murderer. You are what is wrong with the world, not those people over there. I am what is wrong with the world. The red line between good and evil runs right through my heart. And if I'm going to round up the evil that's in the world and destroy it, then all of us are in serious trouble because our red line cuts right through the middle of our lives. So what do we do with that? Right, That's a pretty heavy, pretty challenging, pretty convicting message. What do we do this morning if we feel in any way the sting of the truth of this? If we feel convicted of the murderous contempt that's in our hearts? Can I give you a really simple encouragement this morning? I want to encourage you to run to Jesus. Uh, and that might seem a strange thing to say because he's the one who's just made us 
very uncomfortable and disturbed us. But the same Jesus who speaks these difficult, disturbing words, who puts us all in the dock and finds us guilty of murder, is the same Jesus who dies on the cross and in his death takes all of our murderous rage and contempt on himself. Not only our acts of violence in the world, not only our violent and hurtful words that come out of our mouths, but even the contempt in the secret hidden places of our hearts that nobody else knows about. The worst things that you have ever spat out in the quiet of your own heart. He takes all of that on himself. And Jesus allows himself to be the target of the world's contempt. He allows himself to be spat upon and mocked as a fool. He allows himself to be discarded like a piece of rubbish and declared to be good for nothing and worthless and deplorable. He takes the poison on himself. And so I want to encourage you this morning to run to Jesus and confess to him today your most angry, murderous, contemptuous thoughts. Because none of it's going to shock him. I want to encourage you to ask him for forgiveness and for healing. Um, I found a phrase coming to my mind this week uh, that actually comes from the Anglican uh, Book of Common Prayer. And in the prayer of confession in the Anglican Prayer Book, which I, I love, um, there's a really simple phrase um, that I think is really powerful. Um, after confessing that we have not done the things we should have done and we've left undone the things uh, we should have done, um, it simply says this, and there is no health in us. And it sounds like a really depressing conclusion, but actually it's profoundly liberating. Why? Because Jesus hasn't come for the healthy. He's come for the sick. And we can bring our sickness to him to find healing. Uh, Martin Luther uh, once said something really powerful that he said, in the beginning, at first, Jesus is my accuser and my heart is my defender, right? So Jesus comes at me and convicts me of murder in my heart and I want to make all these excuses and defend myself. And then Martin Luther says this, but then my heart becomes my accuser when I get that conviction and I know that it's true. And then in a great reversal, Jesus becomes my defender. I think that's a really powerful truth to go and reflect on. At first, Jesus is my accuser and my heart is my defender. But then, as my heart becomes my accuser, Jesus becomes my defender. When we confess our sins to Jesus, he offers us forgiveness. But I want to encourage you, don't stop there. Um, with half a gospel, he doesn't just bring forgiveness, which would, would then maybe leave us riddled with contempt and anger and all these things. He also offers healing of our angry hearts. He's able to uproot the contempt from our hearts. He's able to melt that frozen anger that's maybe buried deep inside us. The same Jesus who died for our sins also rose from the dead and pours out his spirit and is able to change us deeply from within. He's able to give us a new heart, a heart like his. He's able to fill us with love and compassion even for our enemies 
So that even in the moment when our enemies are spitting on us, we can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I want to remind you of that quote. I'm going to keep hitting you over the head with it. That he's going to make us into creatures that can obey these commands. He's going to make us people who can live free of contempt um, with hearts full of love for our neighbor and our enemy. And then maybe we'll be ready to play our part in changing the world and challenging injustice, but fueled not by outrage, but by the love of Christ as he changes our hearts. Um, I'm aware I wanted to dwell on those verses that we've dwelt on this morning, and I I don't have time to linger on the other little bits that we read, uh, but I just want to mention them as we finish. Um, Jesus presents two really specific applications of this teaching. Um, And I just want to drop them with you. Say these are really practical and down to earth. And I think Jesus really meant them. And we're meant to go and put them into practice. Um, And I've kind of summed them up to make them memorable like this. Um, Be reconciled to your brother or sister before you go to church. (laughs) That's what Jesus says. Before, Before you offer your gift at the altar, if there's something between you or your brother or sister, Go and sort it out. Don't ignore it and hope it's going to go away. Go to them and be reconciled. And so maybe in a sense, it should be normal in the community of faith to get a phone call on a Saturday from a brother or sister saying there's something we need to sort out before we worship together tomorrow morning. I think Jesus really meant this, that we're meant to practice this in the church. So be reconciled to your brother or sister before you go to church. And secondly, be reconciled to your neighbor before you go to court. Um, go go to them early. Go to them quickly. We're not to be people who lightly let things get litigious, who say, let's let the courts decide. We're to do everything we can to see reconciliation in those relationships. As Paul says in Romans 12, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So this is something we're meant to put into practice. Keep short accounts with your neighbors as well. Uh, as you, you live your life. So there's two really practical applications uh, to carry with you and think about uh, this week. Um, I want to finish with a verse uh, from Ephesians that maybe sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. Maybe a good verse to reflect on today. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Let's pray as we finish. And then we're going to sing together uh, one last song. Let's pray. Father, we want to come to you this morning and hold up our hands and confess our sins before you. We want to confess Uh, that as we hear these thunderous words from Jesus, uh, we stand convicted that in all of our hearts there is anger, and beneath the anger there is contempt. Father, I want to confess my sin this morning and say that contempt is in me. Father, we want to say as your people this morning, there is no health in us. We are people of violence. There, is, there are murderous thoughts that stew in our hearts. Father, I want to pray this morning, would you help us as we feel convicted? 
Help us to run to Jesus. Help us to believe the gospel. That Jesus has taken the very worst that we have done, the very worst that we have said, the very worst that we have even thought in the secret corners of our hearts. And he has taken it on himself. And he comes to us this morning offering forgiveness and offering healing of the poison that's in our hearts. Father, as each of us maybe reflect this morning on where we need that healing, would you come, Lord Jesus? Would you come, Holy Spirit? Would you change us deeply from within? Would you fill us instead of being people full of anger and full of contempt? Would you make us people who are filled to overflowing with the love and compassion of Jesus? Help us to carry it to our brothers and sisters. Help us to carry it to our neighbors and to carry it even to our enemies. We need a miracle of the Holy Spirit for this to happen. We pray you would come and change our hearts. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.